I'm Glenn Crooks, and this is On Frame. Beginning June 7th in France, the 8th edition of the FIFA Women's World Cup with the number one team of the world and the defending champions, the U.S. Women's National Team, in their final preparations before departing uh, after a send-off match, which will be at Red Bull Arena on May 26th. Jeff Kasouf has documented the women's game as well as anyone in our country since the inception of The Equalizer in 2009. That's a publication with a focus on the game across the globe. And Jeff has co-authored a new book, The Making of the Women's World Cup, Defining Stories from the Sports Coming of Age. He'll be joining us later. It's a great discussion about the past and present state of the women's game on the world stage. After an off weekend, NYCFC is looking to extend a seven-match unbeaten streak in Chicago against the Chicago Fire. At least that's what they're calling them for now. Dan Santa Romita, he covers the fire for Pro Soccer USA, previously with CSN Chicago, NBC Sports Chicago, Dan, welcome to On Frame. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Just great. I think uh, before we get going, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about yourself so we, uh, our audience can learn more uh, about our writers. Uh, is this uh, the area you grew up, the Chicago area? Yeah, I, was, uh, I grew up uh, born in the city, grew up in the suburbs, um, went away for college, came back after, uh, <laughs> did uh, some, some sports writing and, and kind of fell into, uh, by a strange coincidence, uh, covering the fire for, as you mentioned, CSN, which is now NBC Sports Chicago. Um, and then, uh, when they lost TV deal with the fire in 2018, not a fire ESPN plus only, which is a very interesting case study for the league. I know DC and a couple other teams are doing similar streaming only deals, but, um, anyway, when that happened, um, NBC got rid of their, their sports, co- uh, their fire coverage. I still uh, work for them uh, as a digital producer, but pro soccer came along. There was an opening kind of worked out where I was able to, to keep doing the soccer writing on the side. And it's, uh, it's been fun to stay in the beat. It's interesting. Let's let's stick with that streaming service first. How is that working out for the supporters? And we heard about the issues uh, down at DC United with their particular service. How's it going with the fire? Yeah, you know that's a it's a tough topic to like gauge how it's doing. Uh, we had an interesting uh, like they call it roundtables. Uh, Nelson Rodriguez, the team GM and president, uh, has three of them a year. Where he, uh, you know, kind of just fields reporter, uh, reporters' questions and gives a state of the team and everything, and that of course came up. And uh, he had an interesting comment where he was saying, you know, there's a frustration there that viewership numbers are not being shared with the team, which of course filters down to their corporate partners as far as, you know, they want to know the numbers to know what value they're getting on the sponsorship and as in terms of viewership. So maybe something rocky on that front, but I mean, from the supporters' front. Uh, it, it's tough if you're in the city and you like going to watch parties. It, they're much harder to coordinate. You can't just tell a bar to flip on ESPN Plus. They don't all have that ability or even know what you're talking about. It's not just hey, put on NBC Sports or put on ESPN Two or FS1 or whatever the channel may be. Um, so it's been some grow. There's been some growing pains with that for sure. Uh, and and obviously that Rodriguez was. I mean, he even said it. He quote called it a frustration. They don't have the numbers. So. But they're having some issues on their end is interesting too. Uh, but what was the uh, what was the impetus? I mean, what what stimulated this? Because I, uh, you know, not that I hang out at bars all the time, but it, but it is you know the the team's on the road and and you want to go to a watch party. Not you know probably not everybody can throw ESPN Plus up there, like you say. Right. Yeah, no, I, I don't know exactly how that's that's 
if they thought that through or if they thought that was a big negative or if they thought it would be as bad as it's been in terms of that. Like they, I think he even mentioned it. Uh, Rodriguez mentioned that there were some, they tried to get box streaming boxes to certain bars so they could more easily uh, put on ESPN plus. I mean, the big thing was they were paying for airtime to be on CSN NBC. Um, and then ESPN plus and gave the fire the first rights fee they'd ever received. So um I think it was basically money driven and I think they thought they were ahead of the curve and that still may be true. The question is, are they too far ahead of the curve? Like is, is the infrastructure there? Are people aware enough of streaming only services like that? Um, so, I mean, they were, I think they were the first that was to go streaming only. Mm. So I know DC came in a year later, but um, so it's an, a very interesting case study and we may not know right. for a few years how it actually turns out. So Nelson, he has these roundtables. Just tell us a little bit more about them. Uh, I, I would imagine it seems to be pretty transparent that he'll uh, he'll gather the media. I, it seems to me almost more than three times a year, but three times a year, sit around, and I, I would imagine you guys can ask him anything. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they, they're always over an hour. I mean, Rodriguez likes to talk, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's great for reporters. Um, but, yeah, he uh, is not afraid to answer questions. Obviously, you know, and any sort of executive or whatever will dance around certain things if he needs to. But, um, yeah, no, it's these things are always he's done them ever since he took over uh, before uh, the 2016 season. Uh, we, they've that was something they did from from the start of his tenure and they've continued doing. And um, usually a lot of topics are covered. It's sometimes it's tricky to get to pin him down to certain things because, you know, he's he knows what he's doing in terms of what he should and shouldn't say. And so. You know, it is always telling what he's willing to talk about. That's why him saying he had frustrations with ESPN Plus, for example, was interesting. Um, but he also gives us a lot of uh, transfer rumor updates. Like he won't talk about specific players, but he usually talks about needs and goals. And, and for example, he said they, they're looking at, at designated players in the summer for the 2020 season because they'll have some flexibility in the roster. So you get some good nuggets out of those things for sure. Uh, we're talking to Dan Santa Romita, who uh, covers the Chicago Fire for Pro Soccer USA. They will host New York City FC on Saturday. The kickoff, it's a Univision game. The kickoff is 3.55 p.m. Eastern, 2.55 Central, where the game will be played. And that's just for everyone who sees 3.30 or 2.30 and uh, wonders when, when the thing is going to kick off. So uh, one more thought about Nelson Rodriguez and this uh, name change or uh, nickname change or branding change. What, is that, a, is that uh, moving forward? I mean, what, what's the status of all that? And, and what are some of the names that have emerged? You know, honestly, as far as names, we haven't really seen any concrete rumors. There's been some fake things slitted around, so be careful when you're looking out there. But um, <laughs> it, it's it's honestly been... In it was something Rodriguez talked about uh, last year, but not in. Uh, he's very vague as far as what that meant. Uh, I think it was uh, John Urban, who was the team's COO, I believe, is his title, uh, had mentioned something in a in a sports business um, uh, website about you know we're looking, and it was such a passing comment the way it was read read in the interview about yeah we're looking if there's anything we want to refresh the brand and and so then. Um, I asked Rodriguez that last year, and, and, and he said, yeah, the, a refresh is a good word. We're looking into it. We don't know what that's going to mean, whether that's yeah. the badge or colors or name. Uh, and then the rumor came out this year about the name being a possibility, and Rodriguez has not shot it down. He says everything's on the table still. They could change the name. Uh, nothing is settled as far as he says. 
so who knows? I, I think it's likely we will see some change, but that could be something like we saw with, with maybe Columbus where they changed the logo, kept the colors, uh, kind of rebranded the crew SC, but that was super subtle as far as, uh, names concerned. You know, we could see something like that with the fire. Uh, I don't think we're going to see like a sporting Kansas city total overhaul, but according to Rodriguez, Nothing is off the table right now. What is the uh, reaction to those who have been in that area for a long, long time? And uh, Chicago Fire, one of the, uh, you know, original, uh, well, the, 97 <laughs> they emerged. Yeah, 97 they emerged, as is their hashtag. So is, is, there, uh, is there any contentious behavior on Twitter or any other uh, outlet in, in terms of changing the Fire name? Contentious behavior on Twitter, never. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, no, I, I, I think some of the hardcore fans are not taking it super well, as you can imagine. But it's one of those things you have to see how it's going to play out before, uh, you know, what in the Venom spew. Because I, I think, uh, if again, if it's a super subtle change, then I don't think people are going to get too worked up. I, I think the badge probably gets touched up in some capacity. Right. I don't know. I mean, the, the badge and the name are, are, are beloved by a lot of the hardcore fans. I think the thinking for Rodriguez and some of the front office staff is we don't have enough hardcore fans as you can see with the attendance numbers this year, that they're dead last in the league, that right. they can really do the status quo. They're trying anything to make something work. Well, let's look at this. So a little over 6,000 came to a midweek match against the New England Revolution, which led to the demise of Brad Friedel, or or put a stamp on it, that 5-0 win in Bridgeview. 11,500 the next game, which was on the weekend, uh, a 2 to nothing win over Minnesota. Which, uh, that's another thing we need to uh, talk about before we get right to the team, is this potential move from Bridgeview uh, out of the city back into the city and Soldier Field. So, can you update us on any of that chatter? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's going to happen. They're, they're, they're moving forward. They haven't said anything official because there's still paperwork and such, but they admitted there is a memorandum of understanding with the village of Bridgeview where SeaKeek Stadium is located to uh, break or amend that lease. Because uh, it was a 30-year lease and they, they entered the stadium in 2006. So there's a long way to go. Uh, and so they, they're, But it's been a bad relationship for both sides. The village of Bridgeview took on a lot of debt and the fire have not drawn well since the first few years of the stadium. And you can argue never really. like They never averaged over 18,000 a game anywhere in their history, including Soldier Field. So... Um, it sounds like they're going to move back to Soldier Field. Uh, it's just a matter of paperwork and, you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's kind of thing. They played there uh, their first, what, five years until they renovated Soldier Field, and they had to move out to, uh, they played in a college stadium in the suburbs while Soldier Field was being renovated and then moved back for like a year and a half, two years, I believe, to the renovated Soldier Field and then moved out to the Toyota Park. So, They've definitely been uh, moving around a lot in their history, and I, 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 there's pros and cons this move. I think the location uh, in Bridgeview is is bad for a lot of the Chicagoland area, uh, especially the city. It's not an easy drive to get out there, especially on a weekday. That's why that New England game, which, by the way, is, is, I'll give the fire a little bit of a break as far as attendance. They have not had good weather weekend games at all yet. You know, the New England game on May 8 was the only nice weather they've had, and that was a Wednesday, and that's going to trump everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, 
so yeah, there's pros and cons of being in the city. Soldier Field is not the most successful. It's not as easy as Wrigley or Guaranteed Rate where the Sox play or even the United Center where the Bulls play. It's right on the lake. It's a good 20, 25-minute walk from uh, the nearest L train or uh, bus stop. So there's still some issues with that. Um, so would you is it the feeling is is that attendance numbers will rise if it's back in the city without question? I think that's the hope for them. I don't know that that's a guarantee. I think they need to get a lot of other things right. It gives them an opportunity to have a fresh start. You know, and as I was I touched on earlier, the, the fact they have some flexibility with the roster as far as designated players. None of their current DPs are under contract after the season right now. So they could go and make a splash. And it sounds like Rodriguez is looking into how they can do that. If you go to Soldier Field, you know, Taylor Twelman said it on one of the ESPN broadcasts on one of his halftime rants talking about the fire. If you go into Soldier Field with a big-name star or two, like, say, Chicharito, if that's possible, or pick somebody else, then maybe, okay, you get a different fan base because people who live in the city might find it more accessible, and you've got potentially a fun, exciting team with some big-name players, then maybe you can build the brand up that way. Um I don't think anything's guaranteed as far as what they're going to get in attendance in Soldier Field, though. All right. Well, Dan, let's let's get to the current team. <laughs> let's go the the last three matches. So let's go back to the uh, three matches ago. Uh, the fire defeat New England. We talked about that. Five uh, nil. Friedel out. Bruce Arena in with the Revolution. Then the shutout over the Minnesota United. That made it uh, three clean sheets in three games. And as you wrote, I didn't I, I did not know this until I saw it in your article for Pro Soccer USA. For the first time since 2017, Chicago recorded consecutive wins. <laughs> yeah. But then. Oh, the concept. Yeah, but then, so they the fire forgets how to defend in what is now the famous Chris Wondolowski show. They needed two goals yeah. to surpass Landon Donovan, all-time leading scorer, MLS history. So he puts away four against Chicago. All of these San Jose Earthquake goals in their 4-1 to one win. So how do we explain this? I, I know Schweinsteiger was missing and Gaetan was missing from the San yeah. Jose match. Does that make that big a difference there? Uh, I, I'm, I honestly don't know how big a... Uh, of a role Gaetan has. He's played well, but they the attack looked kind of dangerous before he got there, so I'm still figuring that one out. As far as Schweinsteiger, that was a big deal. Uh, it's it's funny, his evolution from playing center mid in 2017 when he... I mean, they, they had done a good job of building pieces, support pieces, and good players, um, but he really put them over the top that season, and they ended up having the third best record in the league. Um but since then, he's been gradually shifting towards playing center back more and more consistently and to the point where that's pretty much just his position at this point. And when he started doing it, there were some games in 2018, maybe even a couple here and there in 2017 where he was a sweeper, where he, he knows how to read the game, obviously, right? So he's good at that, and that's huge in that position. But he doesn't have the size. He's not very good in the air, so he struggled against some of the bigger strikers in the league. I know Kai Kamara scored against the Fire this year. Um, but he has really improved his game at center back and become one of the better ones in the league. And I don't know that the back line around him has really proven itself to be that solid. I think Johan Kapoloff's a very good defender. Outside of that, they have a lot of question marks in that defense. So how about the addition? Uh, how about the addition of Francisco Calvo from Minnesota? And first time he met his former team, it was a two nil uh, clean sheet and, and Calvo teamed with Schweinsteiger back there. How's that worked? Yeah, it seemed to be working pretty well. Uh, he he debuted in uh, in the LAFC game on May four, came off the bench, and then and got the two starts against in the shutouts against the Minnesota. He's playing center back. I know he played left back 
more with Minnesota, and I asked him about that after the Minnesota game, which spot he prefers. And he says, oh, absolutely center back. I'll play left back, but I really don't like it. So he seems to be happy playing center back. It seemed to work, although he was definitely responsible for, for at least the first goal that Wando scored. Who was? It's amazing how Wando has this knack, but he, that first goal against San Jose, uh, Wando off, he's, he's wide open on the back post in between two defenders. How you leave that guy unmarked, I don't know. But it happened. So Cavill made a mistake on that one. Um, and the defense struggle in general without Schweinsteiger. So mixed results on him so far. I think they definitely needed an upgraded center back. And, and they're hoping he's in. We'll see. How about uh, we me- mentioned Nicolas Gaetan and you weren't quite sure the Argentinian transfer exactly how how he's fitting in. But it seems like it's getting better maybe week by week. He, he was the MLS player of the week uh, after the, the wins over the Revs and the and the Quakes. But he's injured now. Uh, do you know the specifics of that, and and do you know if he'll be ready on Saturday? I wouldn't expect him ready on Saturday. The team hasn't said much yet, but he's. It was a muscle injury. Uh, he scored against Minnesota, and then and then had to get subbed out maybe ten minutes later, uh, in the first half. Uh, it, it was. It's one of those injuries, you know, when it comes to like hamstring and and quads and stuff like that. For soccer players, when you're unable to train and then unable to run and it's like okay so you're out for a couple weeks where you can't do anything and then it takes time to build fitness back up so i would say he's probably going to be out for another couple weeks but we'll see what happens but i'd be shocked if he plays against new york i wouldn't expect that at all but do you think he's a healthy attack he's a bit more of a playmaker something that the fire lacked yeah, no, he's definitely something they lack. Uh, the, the interesting thing is, and this is something more in 2017 when the team was good, they didn't have a playmaker. They had a nice run in the summer, and then the league seemed to adjust and kind of bunker in uh, and play in the counter, and the fire really couldn't break down uh, bunkered in defenses. And so the thought was they needed a playmaker. Uh, and last year they had a number of different issues where different things started falling apart. Um, but they seem to have a good team again this year, or at least a, a more complete attack. And Gaetan has fit in, and he's put up good numbers, and he's shown his, his technical ability on the ball. The thing that uh, I, I just don't know is in Panovic's system, which seemed to rely on wingers and fullbacks, um, you know, being dangerous from wide positions. You know, they have uh, Alexander Katai is one of the best players in one-on-one situations in the league. Uh, and Shemislav Frankowski, a new Polish player they added this season, uh, offseason, is one of the fastest players in the league. So they're dangerous on the wing, and I think the team tends to rely on that. And they haven't – I don't know that if it's on Gaetan or the team around him or the tactical setup, they haven't really had a game where Gaetan is pulling all the strings. But with that said, he's still made some key plays. He had some nice assists and has scored some goals already. So he's been good. It's a matter of, of how are they going to integrate him fully as, as they continue to use him. Yeah, I mean, you look at Nemanja Nikolic, Alexander Katai, who scored a pair of second-half goals last year to defeat New York City FC, C.J. Sapong, who uh, has been effective at times. So it, it, it has the appearance of an attack that's uh, certainly improved from a season ago. The plus-three goal differential is actually tied for fourth uh, among teams in the Eastern Conference. So... Uh, Meanwhile, Chicago's in ninth place in there, so they're two out of playoff position. So before we wrap this up, with all that in mind, I mean, what what is the uh, what is the the thinking about the rest of the year? Are are the Chicago Fire a playoff team? Yeah, that's that's we're going to be asking that I think all the way down to the wire. I really think they're going to be right on the bubble for that. Uh, when you look at the teams in the Eastern Conference, and I, I think you can throw City in that mix of teams that you 
probably expect to make the playoffs, um, especially now that they've been on a better better run lately. And, um, but you look at, you know, Philadelphia, D.C., 24 points already. It would take a pretty big collapse for those teams to fall out of the playoffs. Uh, Atlanta, New York City, Red Bulls, Toronto, all in playoff spots, and it's hard to see those teams falling apart. Yeah, the Red Bulls have struggled, and, and Toronto didn't make it last year, but it's not going to be easy to crack that top seven. And the Fire have been an inconsistent team. You know, they looked great against New England and Minnesota, and Minnesota didn't have Darwin Quintero starting, so that's relevant. But And then they get smoked in San Jose, and you're wondering what's going on. So I think they're going to be right there, right in the borderline for that seventh playoff spot. Uh, it's going to be interesting. And, and you mentioned uh, Nikolic and Sapong. I think that's going to be one of the more interesting storylines, too, is Nikolic, he missed two big chances in San Jose, and uncharacteristically has struggled in, in front of goal. That's his, his, you know, his, his go-to thing is finishing in front of goal. And he has been less consistent at that. So, and Sapong has been very good. So we'll see if there's maybe a shakeup. The fire don't have too much flexibility. Rodriguez said that if they're going to shake things up, someone else is going to have to go. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. All right. Nikolic does have five goals for the fire over the uh, 12 matches. Uh, well, you got to read his stuff for pro soccer USA covering the Chicago fire and also the Chicago red stars, Dan, the Red Stars, they might be the best team in the NWSL this year. Haven't they beaten North Carolina, the defending champions already, who they met in the championship game last year? Yeah, well, they lost to them in the semis. But, yeah, they, they, um, they've they been uh, surprisingly good this year. I, I shouldn't say surprisingly necessarily because they do have a lot of talent. But they seem to be uh, taking it up a notch. They made the playoffs four years in a row, I believe. And uh, Sam, I mean, Sam Kerr is just so good. She's, she's yeah. an incredible goal scorer. She's got six goals in six games and, uh, she told us uh, at the, the weeks ago the fire uh, the Red Stars last home game before she leaves for uh, World Cup prep with Australia. She she joked to the reporters, "See you after the World Cup with a trophy." So she's feeling pretty <laughs> confident about Australia. I thought that was pretty funny. So you know they they got a lot of talent um, and they 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 might have the depth to overcome missing all their their five World Cup players too. So that's a fun team to watch out in Bridgeview too. No question, and and for those listening who follow mostly the men's game or don't watch women's soccer, uh, Sam Kerr is the uh, she's worth the price of admission if you have a chance to see her play. Dan, thanks so much, Dan Santa Romita, uh, who covers the Chicago Fire for Pro Soccer USA. Look forward to uh, seeing you on the weekend, man. All right, thanks a lot for having me. Appreciate it. The eighth Women's World Cup will kick off on June seventh in France, ending with a final on July seventh in Lyon. Will the U.S. be in the final? Will the hosts be in the final? While our guest here on frame, that'll be a couple of the things I ask him along the way. He is the founder of The Equalizer, uh, the leader in coverage of the women's game since 2009, former writer and editor for 442 and NBC Sports, among others. And he is the co-author of the new book, The Making of the Women's World Cup, Defining Stories from the Sports Coming of Age. And I want to welcome in Jeff Kasouf. Jeff, what's happening? Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate the uh, the fine intro there. Well, I we're, there's more to it because I, I, I do want people to know a little bit more about you. They, they may have heard you do interviews on Sirius and on other podcasts. However... I, we had a chat one day at the uh, Kicking and Screening Festival in New York City, and uh, that's where I found out you were a Division Three player at Utica yeah. College. Utica. So <laughs> there, I, I'm certain there are folks in the audience that have no idea where Utica is. So tell us about Utica and your experience playing there. 
Well, I, I think uh, I, I read about The Office having a, a surge in popularity after it's uh, it's ended, and I know uh, if, if folks watch The Office, they probably have an idea of where Utica is as the uh, uh, one of the branches there. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm played in uh, it's in Central New York. It's um, I think well, I, I know as as since I've left, uh, broken off from being a um, <clears throat> not a Syracuse University satellite, but it was it was founded by Syracuse and. Um, so, so many of folks who came through up until close to, um, when I, when I went through, uh, have, you know, Syracuse degrees and all that, but I think they've since gone fully independent, but, um, yeah, central New York, uh, played D3. I'm a, a big advocate of, uh, the, the world of, of soccer and college soccer being a lot wider than, uh, just the, the division one ranks and the, you know, the, the few that we see, uh, at that level and um yeah it was great i was uh, i miss playing quite a bit so I try to play when i can I've, I've played a bit in some men's leagues and some other places um that's right or so. pick up whenever you can get it right <laughs> just find a game find yeah, a game exactly. well you know division three does uh, you know get uh, short publicized at times and uh, and and you can tell how much i've watched the office i have seen it but uh, so i i suppose more in the audience will know where utica is uh, than i do or those that have not watched the office now i looked under the notable utica alumni it is just on it, it might have been uh uh what do you call it wikipedia okay and i, I was disappointed you weren't listed so they've got <laughs> they've got andy rubin who's the founder of android so he gets a mention and David okay. Weber, the former Inspector General of the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. The important part of this figure, Mr. Weber, is he helped uncover the Bernie Madoff scandal. So what I figured for you, if, if you can find something with FIFA and the women's game, and <laughs> I, I'm sure there's something there. Yeah. Maybe we can get you on that notable uh, alumni list. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I might, I might need to shoot off an email. I know I did get a, a couple of emails from some folks back uh, back up there when the book came out. So uh, maybe I'll have to see. Um, I, I was promised it'll be in the, the college library, but um, brilliant. Yeah, so so I'll have to work on getting them uh, to update that list. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I went on on your LinkedIn page and uh, the description about you soccer storyteller so you've got this book uh that you've co-authored with kieran tavum and it's entitled the making of the women's world cup defining stories from the sport that's coming of age if i have that right and the uh, so so why why did you to feel like this was uh, an important story to tell yeah I, I think um a combination of things uh you know obviously it's um it, it's an extremely important year um, and, and now really, you know, months at that point with that we're at, um, for the women's game and, and the growth we've seen in it. And, and, you know, you've seen it as well. So, so much is, um, th there are a lot of eyeballs on there. I, I think, you know, we'll find out by the numbers come, come world cup and end of, you know, after the tournament, but I think, you know, numerically probably more eyeballs than ever and more interest than ever. Um, we saw that in 2015 with, some of the the crowds and even the TV audiences that were were drawn. So um, it, it's the right time for not only talking about the sport, but looking back on some of the the things that have happened. I think 
you know, this is, I don't know that this is a positive or a negative by any means, but I think there are a lot of new fans to the game. Um, and certainly, you know, we see this on the kind of day in, day out level with, with what I do with uh, the Equalizer, with NWSL fans even that like WPS and even, you know, certainly WSA, those are like different worlds to them. Um, you know, th- there is a bit of a, a lost history of sorts. And we've seen that even with, with some of my colleagues in the media that, that were, um, are looking back at, you know, some of the early days with, with what they're doing with, with 91, 99. Um, so, so some of the inspiration there, and then, you know, honestly, um, uh, hatchet, which, which, uh, well, hatches the U S and, and little Brown in the UK and, and, um, Robinson, which was the, the specific division and a couple of folks within it, um, uh, man named Duncan Proudfoot, who, who was kind of spearheading it, um, you know, a, a publisher who similarly saw the value and was really keen to, to do something. And, um, you know, I think that's, as many might know with, with books and, and anything else, really, um, that's a huge hurdle. So um, thankfully had, you know, that, that vision from a publisher that also knew this was, a, you know, an appropriate time to be looking at the history of the women's game and talking about it and celebrating it. Uh, available on uh, Amazon.com, uh, Kindle, uh, an audio book as well, The Making of the Women's World Cup. All right, so how uh, 1991 is the, the the first World Cup for women. How much time did you spend on that? Yeah, so I, I guess that, that kind of leads to just kind of how the book breaks down. I mean, it's, it's nice in that, um, you know, I think I, I would hope that, you know, everybody picks it up and, and wants to read every chapter, but in a way – each chapter is its own story and lives mostly independent of the others. I mean, certainly for myself, um, I think there's five of the, the U.S. chapters. Um, I, I tried to sort of weave those together in, in a way that kind of cross-references um, past years and, and obviously, you know, to some degree past chapters. But um, so, so 91, um, it's the chapter itself is called The Early Years as it kind of touches on that formation of the team in the mid eighties and, and kind of that, at least briefly the, you know, the ramp into that 91 world cup. Um, so each, each chapter is its own, its own thing. Each, each story is its own chapter. So, um, 91 leads off the book and, and, um, you know, gets its own full chapter and then transitions into, to the others. Well, from that 91, I mean, what, what uh, could you share with us? Uh, maybe one of the stories that, uh, it, it's possible. I mean, there, there a lot of things happened then. It wasn't publicized very well, and uh, and so there might be some things that uh, we've never heard before. Yeah, I mean, I think you know some of the stuff that that in terms of the attention that the team really didn't get, and returning home after winning the World Cup, and and you know met by a mere few folks at the airport, and um, you know I think. <laughs> Some of that, uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, speaking to, to players as well as Anson Dorrance, um, uh, you know, he was great with kind of painting the picture. And, and a theme there was that, you know, from him, from the players I spoke with, you know, they really didn't necessarily care. I mean, was it, you know, would they have liked to get a little bit more recognition? Sure. But there wasn't like a, you know, they were just happy to have won the World Cup. And, um, you know, this was something that, uh, even a few years earlier, I mean, there wasn't even really a thought of, you know, even having this tournament, never mind winning it. So um, I, I think some of the interesting, I mean, you know, it, Glenn, you know, Anson, and, and I think he could tell, and he's got umpteen, you know, unlimited stories. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought some, some interesting ones from him. Um, the, there was one about uh, beating Germany and kind of the, uh, the behind the scenes that, um, 
the Germans were uh, uh, obviously mad, but but there was like a they were they were so incensed that the style of soccer that the U.S. played this this uh, as as Anson describes it, reaching out and choking the opponent with the high press um, that that style which they didn't deem as uh, legitimate, I guess, would be the word because they played this possession style that they they thought was the definition of soccer. That would uh, uh, sort of be Hope Solo's uh, comment about Sweden uh, <laughs> right, not too right. long ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something something to that degree with far less media and you know no cameras. And right, right, and everything. Um, but but I think too that you know on, on another one that um, is in there and and there's a couple different layers to it, but there was an interesting sort of camaraderie that he shared that I think we still see some of it in the women's game today, but, but maybe not to this degree, or at least we certainly don't hear about as much as, um, you know, going to China in 91, there, there was a lot of, and this is where I think there's, there's a lot of sort of detail from players. I mean, April Heinrichs had some stories about trains with holes in the bottom of them that, you know, you could look down and see the tracks and they said, well, that's actually the toilet. Um, you know, that, yeah. um, that th- there's a lot of that, but, um, these teams all, descended upon China for this first world cup. And there, there wasn't a whole lot of expectation. There wasn't necessarily a whole lot of support. So, um, from their federations. Um, so he, he spoke a bit about the camaraderie that actually developed a bit with the U S and Sweden, which were, uh, had to play each other at that world cup, obviously, um, which is basically every world cup as we know. Um, and, and sort of a, a sharing of pasta because they both had issues with, with the food there. And then, um, the Swedes didn't forget what the, uh, that the U S had basically given them some, some food that they could eat ahead of their own <laughs> matchup against them. Right. Um, and that was and then, the, uh, the, the Pia Sundhag led Swede, if right. I recall this right. I, right. I, didn't she write a folk song? I, I, I can't quite remember, <laughs> but there was something yeah. going on. Yeah, they were they were connected. Were they in the same hotel? I guess that must have been. Right. So, yeah, so they were in the same hotel. And uh, so, the, so the U.S. actually, you know, according to, to Anson, gave away some of their, their pasta that they basically hoarded and got through the tournament with uh, to the Swedes ahead of their matchup. And then later in the tournament, um, I'll leave it somewhat of a surprise for the book, but the Swedes didn't forget after the U.S. won the World Cup and, and had sort of a, uh, a really cool sort of uh, congratulate, congratulatory message for them and, and the way they kind of expressed it in the, the hotel that they were actually sharing. Uh, we're with Jeff Kasuf. He has co-authored uh, with uh, Kieran Tavum, The Making of the Women's World Cup, Defining Stories from the Sports Coming of Age. So if we were to fast forward from 1991 to 2015, so you're talking about you know the lack of publicity, nobody showed up at the airport when they returned. When, uh, when the 2015 World Cup champions, the U.S., returned, they had a ticker tape parade in New York City. So... Mm-hmm. Pretty uh, pretty wide gap of uh, of, of celebration. <laughs> yeah, I mean, phenomenal. I, I think um, you know, and to the point of kind of tying the things together, I think you know one of the things that that I touch on in the book and and where um, there is a little bit of, of cross connection between the chapters is um, 2011 was really where this sort of wave started building. I think you know where we are now. I mean, this is eight years already, but. Um, you know, we've seen it, I know you've seen it and, and, you know, the, the point we're at now with, with women's soccer, certainly in the U S, um, you, you sort of trace the origins of that, where that middle part of the, the previous decade, you know, WSA folds, there's no league for a while. WPS even is, is struggling. 
And, and there's really this downtime. I mean, you can even look at U.S. national team attendance and it's bad. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's four digits kind of bad, um, the, the, the attention on it. And you can kind of trace back to actually that, that 2011 quarterfinal against Brazil, the Abby Wambach goal that, that kind of wakes up the country. And, um, you know, circling back to, to your point, they came back from that World Cup and, and there's a lot of detail in there about um, what they they sort of experienced when they came back, which was they were treated as if they won and, and obviously like rock stars, you know, somewhat akin to to 99 and, and the fanfare after that team actually won the tournament, um, but with the awkwardness of, of having lost in the final on PKs. So, um, yeah, that, that, that was really... the interesting part about that. So Japan wins it, which is an inspiration for them as well because of uh you know what had uh, had been taking place in their country with with the tsunami is that right it wasn't at the same time right yeah so so that was a couple months before the the 2011 world cup which is what japan rallied around yeah and, but but that the us was so celebrated and they didn't really win the event that... oh right yes yeah right exactly so they come home and and they're so celebrated and and you know um Abby and, and Megan Rapino and a couple others sort of speak to the the awkwardness of dealing with that. I mean, I remember um, I remember at the time and, and speaking with with Abby for this book too that she she said again like she came home to people who you know the, the, talking about casual fans here who were congratulating her on on winning the World Cup because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all they remember is that goal in the quarterfinal and it was as if I mean it was you know covered and celebrated as yeah. if it was a, a World Cup winning. That's goal. That's funny. In between that, you mentioned the 99 team, and, and they're still probably, that's the most famous team that has won, I think. You know, it may be because of Brandy Chastain, a game-winning PK, shirt off. Maybe that's part of it. Uh, but but that crew, they've been, um, you just got the feeling there's a, there was a lot of mental toughness there. And to me, they've also been uh, very vocal, that alumni group, uh, led by uh, Julie Foudy, Brandy Chastain, and, of course, uh, Michelle Akers. And uh, I remember this one pretty well, Akers. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back to 2015 and mm -hmm. what she thought about uh, Jill Ellis' postgame comments after an unimpressive 2 to nothing win over Columbia. It went like this. This is the quote. And the reason I remember it so well is I was co-hosting a program on mm -hmm. Sirius XMFC when – Akers made this comment. If she, Jill Ellis, is pleased with the way we played tonight, then what the hell is she doing coaching our U.S. team? That went pretty viral. And, yeah, I remember. And there have been, you know, been other critiques, uh, not only of Ellis, but the, the mentality of the team. So what, what did you glean from that 99 group as the, as, the, as the game moved forward for the women? You know, I, I think that 99 team, you know, the, the big thing is, is the fight that they went through, obviously, to to make sure that that tournament was treated as a major tournament, and that it, you know, FIFA and that initial idea and plan of of being kind of this small stadium East Coast tournament was was not how it would be. And then, obviously, they had the worry, um, and, and this is again, you know, it's been documented, but the worry that was anybody going to show up now that they've kind of fought their way into these huge stadiums, and then you know, that traffic jam in Jersey going to giant stadium for the opener, realizing it's for them. Um, and then, you know, everything from there progressing into to huge crowds throughout that East coast, going out to the West coast yeah. and, and winning it in, in Pasadena. So, 
Um, and that's kind of what I was saying about that group, you know, and there were more there, too. But th- those those guys were, were truly the pioneers. And I always wondered, you know, you just heard comments sometimes from them. You know, I wondered if they felt that the that the national team program and the players within really respected what they had done and had laid the groundwork for what now is uh, even though the women are uh, have filed suit against U.S. soccer, right. uh, that you know what they have now is, is due very much in part to uh, what those players did early on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's very interesting, and and you know we've seen some of that. I mean, I think you know to some degree maybe it varies per per player, and um, I, I wouldn't want to necessarily speak for any of them, but I think you know one thing that that is an interesting and encouraging sign, I would say, is. Um, you know, it was it was well publicized recently. The, the, what was it? Two months ago at this point in the the LA friendly, but um, the the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association um, and and the leaders of that, um, the the couple of active players, I think it's they have like a proper alumni committee type of thing, um, have reached out to all of you know every player to ever suit up. I think is how they phrased it to to have this reunion that they had in LA the first time that they've actually done that. And, and it seems that that sort of camaraderie, that cross-generational camaraderie is there more than it has been. I don't think that there's ever been a, a beef per se, but certainly, you know, there was always, I, I mean, I can tell you for sure, and you know this, that going into 2015 and sitting there and, and the narrative as, as uh, us uh, media folk maybe are, are blamed for sometimes was like, look, the, Nobody, the U.S. has not won this since 99. And, and it's, you know, when you, you can frame it as 16 years when it's really, you know, three tournaments. But, right. um, you know, it's, it's something that hung over the heads of these current players, some of them still around, obviously, and, and current players at that time at 2015. And, you know, there was a, an angst that they had to hear about that all the time. So um, winning 2015 was, was certainly, I mean, I wouldn't say it was driven by that in any form, but uh, that helped in terms of these like nonstop comparisons. And then, of course, you know, we went right into well, which team was better because they both won. But, right, uh, right. Um, well, it's been know, pretty uh, eight World Cups, and the U.S. has won three times. And you know, some right. people might be disappointed with that mark. And and the book, you know, it, it's it's not just an American tale. You've got stories from uh, the women's game across the globe. Can you give us a, a, just a little bit of a snapshot on how you, uh, you know, move outside of the States? Because I think most of the public, most of the things we see about World Cup here in the States that have been written, you know, it's, it's almost always about the U.S. team. Right. Yeah, so, so um, Kelly Smith was kind enough, uh, the, the legendary England and, and Arsenal forward, and obviously played over here in the U.S. Um, a couple different occasions. Um, wrote the forward for us and, and talks a little bit about the the feeling of being a player in a World Cup and and um, and then she actually has her own chapter as well that, that Kieran goes into um, of her breakout 2007 of kind of um, coming coming into the world's mind and, and view and obviously the uh, the famous photo of, of her kissing the boot after she scores um, so so a look into kind of her breakout. There's also a, a wider chapter on England in 2015 and that magical run that they had to the third place match and um, the emotion in it. It was, you know, obviously a, a bit of a surprise to see them get there and then the way that they lost that semifinal um, and and sort of capturing the attention of of the English sort of general public and and Kieran goes into sort of the how that's the birth of the lionesses as as sort of a not a brand but kind of a an identity. Um, 
and then looking at you know th there's a look at sort of uh, Marta and and her her background her upbringing just her her career uh, as a whole which is is legendary but obviously I, I think you know there's a bit of a, a disappointment with uh, just from the outside objectively of kind of if if she had the support from the Brazilian Federation of what could have been. Um, and you and tweeted, then, you tweeted, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, uh, and, no, no. and follow Jeff at Jeff Kasuf, you spell K-A-S-S-O-U-F. And, and I wasn't aware of this. I think it, it, uh, on this day that we're recording the interview, you, uh, tweeted that Formiga, 41 <laughs> years old, is on the Brazil squad, mm -hmm. I assume with Marta, I know yep. Marta was selected, and, uh, it'll be her seventh World Cup, seven World Cups. Yeah, seven World Cups. It's uh, it'll be you know, assuming that she steps on the field in in a few weeks here, uh, it'll be her seventh appearance, which will break a record. She, you know, men or women, uh, and and currently that's a co-record with Hamari Sawa from Japan, who, uh, the two of them have appeared in the last six. So since '95, um, Sawa obviously has has exited uh, the scene, and um, Formiga, she's still going at 41. Yeah, I think it's you know it's. It's twofold for me. I mean, she's um, she's obviously you know a legend and and playing in seven World Cups, playing still at forty one at that level is is uh, an amazing feat. I mean, it's also you know from a Brazilian perspective, back to sort of the the support for the federation. I mean, I don't like kind of grouping these because it shouldn't be an indictment of her, but you know the, the Brazilian federation has has cared so little about that program, and you know you would think that uh, she's there in part because Brazil has not found or maybe better put developed and, and invested in proper replacements for her so that she is still like their option in the center of the park, um, which at 41, there's a lot of trade-offs there, certainly on mobility and, and otherwise. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's an amazing achievement for her. And, and obviously, I think, you know, Brazil, obviously, uh, you know, the same's going to happen at some point here with, with Marta that, I mean, she's an irreplaceable player and, and, um, you know, I'll be interested to see what Brazil looks like one day, probably somewhat soon without Marta, because that, you know, we'll, we'll see if they can maintain that without really a, a firm investment and commitment to that program. Well, you've got the uh, U.S. 2019 in France uh, playing without Abby Wambach, uh, mm -hmm. for one, and uh, Alex Morgan uh, essentially taking over the uh, goal scoring uh, mantle. Uh, you've got Carly Lloyd playing in her fourth World Cup, but uh, some of the names that were around in 15, uh, uh, Heather O'Reilly, for instance, uh, also not involved. So a lot of new faces. I, I want to ask you, who do you think, if you had to pick a U.S. player, who would you f who would you pick uh, from among that group of 23 that maybe we wouldn't expect, those of us uh, kind of outside looking in, to emerge mm -hmm. as an important part of this cup run? Well, I mean, I think the midfield is, is really going to be important. I, you know, the, the back line and, and some of the issues we've seen there are probably um, their own sort of long topic that, that we could discuss. But um, in that midfield, I mean, certainly anybody following the game domestically, following the NWSL, uh, will be aware of, of Lindsay Horan. I don't think it's a – I don't think I could call her a surprise pick, so to speak, when she's just won the league MVP. But I think to the, the outside world that – you know, isn't necessarily following and, and certainly, you know, this is her first World Cup and, and this right. is kind of the first, you know, she played in the Olympics, but a, a, this stage for her will be the first time. But I, I think, you know, similarly in that midfield, Jill Ellis has obviously invested 
um, heavily in in Rose Lavelle and, and believes in uh, her being that key in that number 10 role. Um, you know, I think there's a lot to prove there still for Rose Lavelle. She looked good against South Africa in the most recent game. Um, you know, I think she's a player who has moments that look to be, you know, the world-class sort of individual technical skill that Jill Ellis has been looking for for three years since, you know, really the Sweden game in the Olympics that has driven so many decisions. So um, I would say that Lavelle is, is definitely someone to look at in that sense that there's a lot of pressure there in terms of not just her role, but kind of um, almost what she represents in terms of Ellis's search for this type of player where really in the past it's essentially been Tobin Heath as a, kind of the one and only. Um, and I think that, you know, th- there's a lot still to be proven there on Lavelle's end because of, you know, injuries alone have made for inconsistency and availability, never mind performances. So um, I-, I think a lot could ride on whether she thrives or whether, you know, perhaps this is uh, – not quite her moment. I mean, you know, I think that could be a make or break position area and, and player for the U S well, and that Sweden game you referred to is in the Olympics. Uh, and you know, a lot, you know, has changed from that point on and including, uh, and I don't know, uh, if we've ever identified the exact players, but there was, you know, it's been pretty much confirmed that, uh, the players had sought for the uh, ouster of Jill Ellis. Now Jill Ellis leads them to a world cup in 2015 and then uh, less than two years later, you know, something something was amiss. There's been some interesting things going on there in between uh, that Olympic departure and now. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think it's this is the kind of the, the time every four years that that folks start paying attention and playing catch up. So, I mean, I think that the brief of it is, you know, Jill Ellis went through 60 different players um, from 2016, really end of 2016. Right. I mean, starting in. September after the Olympics there to, to this point. So call it a little over two and a half years, um, 60 players into, into camp getting call-ups, um, you know, and, and really sort of went through the motions with, with a lot of them. I mean, certainly I think you could argue some of them maybe um, not getting enough of a a look, enough of a window to really see if, if they were an answer. And, um, but, but certainly, you know, you can't say that, that there weren't, um, at least some opportunities given on that, on that front. And, um, you know, here we are with the 23, I think it's interesting too. We don't have every squad yet, but the U S was the oldest team in 2015 and, and obviously prevailed, but you know, that was, um, a notable sort of statistic, even, even throughout the tournament and before it, that this was kind of a, a quote unquote old team. And I think it's a little bit ironic that for all the, the turnover of this team, there's 12 returning players from that, um, that 2015 championship team among this 23 for the U S I mean, all this turnover, you know, there are younger players, quote unquote, I wouldn't define them necessarily as young, maybe beyond a, a Tierna Davidson, but, um, for all that, they're still their average age is almost exactly the same as it was last World Cup, which is, you know, probably going to be among the older teams again once we get the final rosters. So uh, it's it's an interesting sort of dichotomy there that there's been all this turnover, but um, you know, I, I don't know if that speaks to kind of leaning on experience. Obviously, Ali Krieger's come in here at the very last, you know, the eleventh hour has has found a roster spot, but. Uh, um, not necessarily a young team still. No, and yeah, I mentioned Hope Solo a couple of times, and, and let's face it, I think in goal with Alyssa Nair, 
Uh, her performance in this World Cup could be, you might level that as, you know, the most important aspect of the U.S. possibility to, to win another World Cup. Uh, Solo, arguably uh, one of the top goalkeepers in the world, and arguably if she was still in shape, and uh, maybe she is, and was accepted into the U.S. soccer uh, fraternity, which she is not, she would be the number one keeper this summer, don't you think? Uh, I mean, I guess it's, it's been so long. I mean, honestly, I've, I've asked a couple of times to, to some of her, um, her, her, I guess not agent, but, but representatives. And, and I mean, to my knowledge, she still has never officially retired. I certainly hasn't been announced and I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's been any paperwork on that. And I know that that was kind of intentionally left open-ended for a while, but I mean, it's been three years now almost and and uh, yeah. obviously ran for u.s president u.s soccer president not u.s president u.s soccer president <laughs> well you maybe that's the next uh, maybe she'll <laughs> yeah, join yeah. the democratic party you know and, uh, for 2020 uh, US, yeah. yeah u.s soccer president and, and uh is is doing some tv some tv duties for this world cup i saw so um i don't know i mean that's tough to answer you know three years on and and you know the first eight months of that or so or maybe more was you know shoulder surgery and recovery from it so I mean, who knows what shape she would be in. I think it's, you know, to some degree, I know it's going to be probably, um, you know, depending on the outlet, sort of covered or, or over-covered. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, uh, a listener, yeah, it's going to be an important tournament for her. I think, you know, some of these, there are questions about her specifically. I think part of that is in, you know, is due to, um, for whatever reason, this back line, which again, for people that are kind of just tuning in, is not the near record shutout back line of 2015. It's, it's a different makeup and, and honestly very different results. It's been leaking goals to some degree in 2019. Um, you know, that that's a product of uh, or a part of what's going on there with, you know, what's going on in front of her is that um, I don't think, you know, individually the players obviously um, are skillful and, and, you know, I, obviously the fullback question is sort of, um, a, a shoehorning to a degree, but, um, you know, certainly Becky Sauerbrunn's still there. There's not a lack of talent, but for some reason, and maybe for rotation, maybe for, um, just kind of forcing that fullback situation, to, maybe because even of the midfield that that's in front of them, um, that back line hasn't really gotten sorted out. And I think that's a big worry for the U S going into this world cup. Hi, right, Jeff, uh, one final thought, uh, before uh, we let you go and then promote that book one more time with Jeff Kasouf, our guest, and WSL, losing uh, national team players to the World Cup. You know, how are they going to survive? I, and I don't mean literally survive, but how's it going to go, do you think? On the field? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, it's um, it's not ideal, you know, the break for the World Cup. I think it's 13 days is the exact number, but... The way it shakes out, it's essentially one weekend that they don't play. Um, so, you know, there are national team replacement players now, which are, you know, an upgrade from amateur players, mm-hmm. um, which which those obviously happen. And then there's, there's supplemental players now, which, again, are a slight upgrade from, you know, essentially those are four spots where players previously were just like in market getting paid nothing but trained with the team. And now they at least make a, a league minimum to be sort of um, – you know, they're basically practice squad players is probably a negative connotation, but um, are part of the roster. So there's going to be a lot of a lot of names that maybe people haven't heard of. Maybe maybe they'll discover uh, during this World Cup. I mean, honestly, I think 
you know, for the league, it's going to be a challenge to be relevant during the World Cup. Um, you know, even from from folks like myself who are, even if they're not in France, they're going to be, you know, mostly focused on the World Cup. So, right. um, you know, from an on-the-field perspective, I think, you know, it opens the door for maybe some teams that aren't so so hit by internationals like a you know a sky blue that's improved even if still winless and not great i mean they're not getting hit too hard they lose carly lloyd they lose kaylin sheridan and and mostly otherwise are are untouched so um you know so i think that it, it could level the playing field a bit in terms of on the field and then off of it um you know I hope that the league is is ready for you know there's a lot of talk about the World Cup bump, um, which needs a little TM trademark next to it because it's talked about so much. I don't totally believe in it to the degree that some folks within the league do, in the sense that you know look at 2015 and certainly since then there's been a rise. But I, I don't know that um, one that it's as defined and, and definitive as as they think so, and two that it's as um, it lasts as long as as they think it does, at least that it's not capitalized on enough um, from a business perspective. So I, you know, I hope that there's a readiness to to capitalize on the attention that'll be on the game in general. But I'm not so confident that there is sitting here in in mid May and and uh, still not really knowing what's going on in the league. <laughs> so yeah, I, you know what? I thought of one other thing. I got to ask you. I, I want your opinion on. Gold Cup, Copa America, yeah. and World Cup for the women in France. The finals of all three of those events are on the same day, July 7th. Yeah. What think you about that? It's absurd. Um, obviously, it's it's a World Cup final. It would never happen. You know, if the equivalent, um, I mean, I guess it does exist to some degree in Conme Ball, but, you know, if, if the equivalent tournaments existed in the women's side that were sort of, uh, these regional confederation uh, championships, um, they would they would not be played on the same day as the men's World Cup, and they certainly wouldn't uh, um, detract from the. I mean, you're talking about you know, people think why is it a big deal, and there are different times, and I mean, you're talking about even from media resources. I mean, you know, you talk about how far the game has to go in a country like a Brazil, even, and, and you know, even in Argentina, who's in the the World Cup again for the women. Um, you know the the media who are forced to choose between those two, um, and and sort of the systemic biases in those those type of markets and countries and and folks covering the game. And I'm not trying to generalize those countries, but it's a global thing. I mean, they're they're going to have to choose between covering the wildly popular men's team and the you know the women's team that they perceive to not have much popularity. And uh, I'm sure they're going to, in many cases, choose the the men's team in the Gold Cup or the uh, the Copa America, and and that's obviously a, a direct impact on impact on the attention on the women's game. So there's a lot of layers to that, but um, you know, I, I don't know. It, well, it's not really good. Visible. Nonetheless, not good. <laughs> yeah. Not good. All right, Jeff. Uh, the book is the making of the Women's World Cup: Defining Stories from the Sports Coming of Age, uh, co-authored by Jeff Kasuf and Kieran Tavum. Jeff, uh, so wonderful to talk to you. Uh, follow Jeff at Jeff Kasouf, K-A-S-S-O-U-F. Uh, good luck with the book. Congratulations on it, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you for having me, Glenn. I appreciate it.
And that'll do it for this week's On Frame. Join me with my broadcast partner, Maddie Lawrence, for the radio call of Saturday's New York City FC at Chicago Fire Match. Pre-game coverage, 3.30 p.m. Eastern time with head coach Dolme Taran. The kickoff, no matter how you see it listed, is 3.55 p.m. Eastern time. You can listen on WNYE 91.5 FM, the New York City FC Network worldwide on TuneIn, and nationally on Sirius XM FC Channel 157. Thanks for listening. I'm Glenn Crooks.